Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to get the COVID vaccine. If this had been on the market for 10 to 15 years and I had more data, then I would feel more comfortable. My fear of the vaccine is more than my fear of getting the illness. No vaccine has ever been proven effective. We know that's not true. A recent study showed more than 25% of parents do not intend to vaccinate their kids. How are we going to get our country into this herd immunity? If 35 million people won't take the vaccine for political reasons or partisan reasons. Even as vaccinations in the U.S. bring down COVID cases and mortality numbers, there's a lot of vaccine skepticism swirling around out there. This is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. And yes, thinking back to the onset of COVID, or looking at some less fortunate places in the world today, we are incredibly fortunate to have widespread access to vaccines right now in the U.S. I mean, just think back to one year ago. The closest comparison is the MMR vaccine, which took start to finish four years to develop. And we're really only in what I would call the first few steps of it. With that said, vaccination rates seem to be slowing. And there may be groups out there so firmly opposed to the vaccine, they prevent the nation and other nations from reaching herd immunity. No shortage of important questions on this episode, and a highly informed guest to help answer them. Dr. Janine Guidry is the director of the Media and Health Lab at Virginia Commonwealth University. This idea of that we don't trust expertise anymore, especially in the intellectual realm, We need to do better at science communication. We need to train teachers better how to teach science and communication about science, because otherwise we're going to keep coming back at this over and over again. And this costs lives. That's my reason for being passionate about this. We spoke with Dr. Guidry at length about the next great COVID-related battle, not so much fighting the virus itself, but fighting the viral misinformation about vaccination. First, though, let's get to know Dr. Janine Guidry, originally from the Netherlands, director of the Cross-Disciplinary Media and Health Lab at VCU, and probably not one of a huge number of health researchers who made one of their great discoveries on Pinterest. So I did my PhD at Virginia's, Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine. My PhD is in social and behavioral sciences, so it's more on the behavioral science part, but done on a medical campus. My undergrads and my master's degrees are in communication, health communication, communication in general, and I've always been really interested in the intersection of both. I think that the more integrated these are, the better it is. I'm a firm believer in our disciplinarity. We face really, really huge issues in this world today, COVID-19 being obviously one of them. And I think that the more people from different parts of society and of science that we have at the table, the better. Was there a major moment in your life when you decided, you know, that's for me, people need to know more about medical information? Yeah, there was actually, uh, but I was six years old. My oldest brother is about 14 years older than I am. I'm from the Netherlands. And he started medical school when I was about six. And then quickly following, one of my sisters started nursing school and the other sister started nursing school. And so through my time of elementary, middle and high school, I was very aware of health and it was an early passion. 
Well, going back to your point about the importance of being interdisciplinary, can you tell us about the discovery you made on Pinterest a few years ago? It's uh, seven years ago now. And this was while I was in my PhD program. We were required to look at a social media platform and look at a health-related issue and do a content analysis. I'm an avid social media user, have been for a long time. Pinterest being one of them. And I used Pinterest like the majority of people still use it. Recipes, decorating ideas, makeup tutorials. But I thought, I have never heard anyone talk about health issues on Pinterest. And I've always had an interest in vaccines. It's one of the big public health triumphs over time. So I decided to look at Pinterest and see if there were vaccine-related posts, and if so, how were they framed? How were people talking about those? And to my great surprise, I looked at a sample of 800 pins randomly selected. More than 75% of all those pins were strongly anti-vaccine. And number two, there was no representation of public health, health care providers, health in any way. These were individuals, people talking about vaccines and saying, oh, don't do this. Don't get the HPV vaccine for your child. Vaccines are not safe. Vaccines cause autism. Basically what we've been seeing on other platforms as well, just amplified. And I wrote that paper up. I got it published. I sent it to Pinterest and I didn't hear anything at that point. And in 2019, I was on a panel in DC about misinformation on social media. And I spoke on vaccines and misinformation. And I talked about Pinterest a little bit. Right after me was a Pinterest representative spoke and who said, when we saw Dr. Gidry's study back in 2014, 2015, we started realizing we had to do something. My paper was not the only one, but it was one of the pieces of information that made Pinterest take notice and say, we need to do something about this level of misinformation. So what was it about Pinterest that allowed for the anti-vax spread of misinformation to crop up to begin with? And how did they try to go about reducing that? I don't think there was necessarily anything all that unique about Pinterest. Pinterest is a social platform. People can post information, they can share information, they can consume information, and that's the same thing that happens on basically all social platforms. I do think that one of the things is that Pinterest still has a high percentage of female users, and a lot of those are moms, and moms still make a lot of the decisions, medically speaking, for families. And so if you have a situation where a population like that is talking about vaccines, the public health environment at that point really wasn't aware of that they were talking about vaccines. So there wasn't a lot of intentionally posting correct information, participating, communicating, dialoguing. And then you combine that with an issue that it's a known vaccines have always come with a level of concern, especially with new vaccines. And that's really sort of a little bit of a perfect storm. So let's jump ahead to another perfect storm, which is COVID. We're curious with all that you know, when did you first hear or read about COVID and what was your gut reaction at that first moment? It was right around the beginning of 2020. I've always had an interest in infectious diseases. So when I saw some news pop up, there appears to be a viral disease that we don't know anything about. 
in China that is coming up. I started looking at it, kept an eye on it. And then, of course, COVID really developed and news about COVID developed very, very quickly last year. But it was from the very beginning on. And I don't think that anyone had an idea of exactly how big this would get. Yeah, well, just about a year ago, we had an interview with a neuroscientist at NYU, Dr. J. Van Bavel, who's originally from Canada, and he commented that COVID wasn't immediately politicized in Canada, which is more of a multi-party system. Yeah. The interesting thing about that multi-party system is if you decide that you don't like the Liberal Party, you could vote for the new Democratic Party, and yet you still don't have to vote for a party you dislike. Whereas in the United States, it's very much, if you don't like your party, it feels like the other party's gonna win because it's a zero sum game of two teams. The other thing I will say is that Canada's a really good case where the coronavirus didn't have to get polarized. And so that's a really interesting case where, and again, Canada's very close. I have a lot of family in Canada and you have real political debates in Canada, don't get me wrong. And many of them are similar to the United States, but this issue did not have to get polarized. Did you have that same impression coming from the Netherlands, which I assume is a more multi-party system? Yes, absolutely. I hold dual citizenship. And to me, it's been remarkable and sad how quickly, not just COVID, but everything related to COVID became polarized. Wearing a mask, social distancing, vaccines, I mean, anything that we could use to prevent the virus from spreading became polarized almost as soon as it hit the hit the floor running, so to speak. And while that's happening, for example, in the Netherlands and Western Europe as well, it didn't happen as quickly and as immediately. And if you have 26 political parties like the Netherlands has, maybe 23, something like that, you just, that doesn't mean there's not extremes there, but it means for any type of government, you have to have a coalition. Well, that means that extreme things are going to just you know, get discarded a little bit sooner. I wish that things hadn't, didn't turn as polarized as quickly. And, uh, I'm not seeing a lot of improvement now that the elections are passed. It's also, next year there's midterms. There's It's a never-ending cycle. Well, not quite a never-ending cycle, Emily. In terms of Purple Principle research, we did take one day off after the 2020 election before thinking about the 2022 primaries. Yes, but that was only because of a little bit of confusion and misinformation about the election results. Yep, just a little bit. But... We did have a well-positioned previous guest speak to the topic of COVID and polarization during season one a year ago when the crisis was hitting full force. During his three terms in Congress, Jason Altmaier was rated the most centrist member of the U.S. House. This is a great concern of mine as this national crisis has unfolded. I've been very concerned about this idea that it's got to be somebody else's fault. That's unfortunately very different than what it used to be in this country, where crises would bring people together. It would be the one unifying factor that was out there where people would put politics aside. It is exactly the opposite now. It only exacerbates the problem of partisanship. It highlights the divide of the country. And you are seeing it with COVID-19. 
sad but true, the country did not come together over COVID as during past disasters. And that creates an even greater public health challenge for vaccination rollout before variants can further proliferate and spread. So we asked Dr. Guidry at what point she and her colleagues in the Media and Health Lab began to monitor the spread of misinformation around COVID vaccination and devise strategies to work against it. The vaccine development started in January of 2020. The pure COVID vaccine development started. Obviously, there had been a lot of development for vaccines that now applies as well. But as soon as I heard about a new vaccine being developed, I thought, this is going to be something where misinformation is going to take place. It's likely going to flourish for a while. And we decided to start looking at doing some surveys, content analyses, looking at specifically how to counteract misinformation, how to answer questions when there's not a whole lot we knew yet about the vaccines. So I would say, yeah, middle of January, end of January of 2020. So I think it's fair to say historically, there's always been skepticism towards vaccines at first, even with polio, which was so widespread and so horrible. But then over time, people get on board, you know, friends and neighbors get the vaccine and there's like a wave of acceptance. Have we seen that to the same degree with COVID or is it too early to assess that? A little bit of both. I think it's too early to assess because we're still in the midst of COVID. We're still in the midst of vaccine development. We're still going to deal with boosters. One of the problems with a lot of infectious diseases is that we don't see them anymore. We don't see how horrible polio was. We hear about it. And then we have, we're asking people to do something that has been developed really quickly. And so I think what you saw is there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy last spring going into last summer. As the vaccine became closer and became available in November, December last year, a lot of words about how actually there was 90 to 95% efficacy for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which is an incredible result. We have seen the vaccine hesitancy go down. And that makes sense because as people get the vaccine and as people see their family, friends, their colleagues, anyone they know get the vaccine and they're okay, the vaccine becomes more acceptable and people become a little bit less concerned about it. I think where we're now is now we're going to see who truly is vaccine hesitant about this vaccine. Right now, the best that we know is that there's still 20% up to 25% of the U.S. population that is not willing to get the vaccine. In certain groups, that percentage is a lot higher. Then we have nations around the world have had no vaccine yet at all. Now, we have all kinds of travel restrictions and the problem with those is we can't keep those in place. We live in a global village. So we are not truly protected against COVID until everyone is protected. And that I think is where our biggest challenge is going to be in the coming three months, a year, two, three years. And when it comes to COVID vaccine skepticism, have you seen the more holistic health kind of population of moms or just people in general that are usually left-leaning politically connect with people who are more libertarian or right-leaning, the don't tell me what to do with my body group of people? Have you seen that kind of unlikely alliance happening? We've seen that with vaccines for years. I think that's one of the interesting things is that vaccines anti- Vaccine hesitancy comes from different perspectives. 
And it's because people have different concerns. Some people are concerned about civil liberties, about rights. Some people are concerned about health and safety. Some people are somewhere in the middle. And I think that's what makes this interesting from our perspective, because it means communicating about all of this can get a little bit more complex. Are they concerned it was developed too quick? Are they concerned that there is a microchip in it, that the government's going to get into youth via the vaccine? Are they concerned that it may cause infertility? It doesn't. But is that something they're concerned about? There's all these different things. And I think one of the most important things is finding out what are someone's concerns and addressing those and not trying to address every concern with every person without having any idea what may be their greatest fear about this vaccine. Fear is a big part of this problem. And we learned something about that from the author of The Fear Factor, the Georgetown neuropsychology professor, Dr. Abigail Marsh, in our Heard from the Herd episode. When communities believe they're being threatened by others who are, they perceive a threat to their values or to their livelihood or to their welfare, you tend to get more sort of black and white thinking, which is another strong promoter of ideology, a lack of trust, you know, a tendency to be mistrustful and hostile and prone to conspiratorial thinking, which are all sort of bound up together. And unfortunately, fear spreads online a whole lot faster than fact-checking. It makes connections, groups, communities, and before you know it, walls of resistance against all kinds of things. The largest anti-vaccine groups on social media and YouTube have gained 8 million followers since late March. Vaccination is about the implementation of brain chips. Children are getting mercury injected into their bodies with vaccines. An 18-year-old testified that he got vaccinated against his mother's wishes, saying that Facebook was the sole source of her anti-vaccine information. We're having this discussion in the spring of 2021, and as Dr. Gidry implies, there's a lot more to come with both current vaccination efforts and then a booster for variants possibly a few months from now. I can just hear the pushback on the booster shots already. Wait, I thought you told me that vaccine was effective. Oh, if only we had a slightly higher level of commitment towards scientific literacy in this country. Several of our guests have spoken to this problem. But maybe none as effectively as one of our non-scientist guests, at least non-lab coat science, the stand-up comedian but committed science podcaster Shane Moss. He talked about conspiracy theories amongst his fellow comedians. There's a lot of like people that are very, very funny that are into conspiracies. I mean, comedians are by and large have these personality traits of usually they're pretty intelligent. Usually they don't have a classical education. And so they haven't been taught, say, like I mentioned, correlation versus causation. And so just like simple things like that, that like a 101 science class could have easily saved you some real embarrassing ideas. And, you know, comedians also have a fondness for really novel ideas. And it's fun to like, think that you're the only one that's figured this thing out about shape-shifting lizard people or whatever. And so you have the wrong mix of those otherwise really admirable, useful, great traits, and you have yourself a conspiracy theorist, and it's unfortunate. 
But there isn't time to give that all-important 101 science course right now, and everyone's sick of zooming anyways. Meanwhile, the fight goes on to convince the most skeptical segments of the public that this vaccine is so in everyone's best interest. We asked Dr. Guidry, how is that effort going? Even with all the facts and logic on your side, how does anyone combat basic human fear reinforced by social media disinformation? Well, that's the uh, $364,000 question. I was trying to think of some large number right there. Um, We don't know yet. We're hoping, yes. Misinformation is really hard to fight. And misinformation online is probably even harder to fight. It's just the sooner we get to people with correct information, that is really, really super important. So that brings to mind a couple of interviews with upcoming guests, Peter Coleman, a social psychologist at Columbia University, and his experience in his difficult conversations lab. Also, Christopher Bale of the Duke University Polarization Lab and the problems in social media. And their conclusion is that changing people's minds is extremely difficult. So what do you find to be most effective? And obviously, there's nothing magical in combating vaccine skepticism. Realize, first of all, you may be the trusted messenger. You may be the person that they may trust to an extent to communicate about something like the vaccine. Second, approach people with empathy. Realize that we've all been in a really hard situation, and it may not have been the same for everyone. I heard someone say, I saw it online, um, we're all in the same storm, we're not in the same boat. But we've all been in this same COVID storm. And so expressing empathy and saying, you know what, I understand that you're nervous. I understand this has been a scary time. I understand that you are concerned. Let me tell you my experiences. And I think that's the, the third thing is talk about your own experiences. Let me tell you why I got the vaccine. Let me tell you why I'm getting my kids vaccinated. Let me tell you the relief that I felt. So find out what people are concerned about. Approach them with empathy. Try to not have the conversation on social media. If you have it there, do it via private messenger, via some sort of a personal private communication. And then finally, I would say, again, coming from a perspective of approaching someone who is with your in your own circle of influence, your family, friends, acquaintances, don't ever make the vaccine misinformation stand over the relationship. Because someone may have questions right now and they may not be ready to say, I'm going to get the vaccine, but maybe in three months they will be. And they'll come to you for information if you haven't shut that door. Let's talk a little bit about the social media platforms. Do you feel like they're doing enough or are they always just doing enough to make it look like they're doing something? They've been doing a lot. And personally, as an individual and as a public health professional, I'm grateful for that. I also know it's a fine line. And I also know that misinformation is going to try to find a way. Are they doing enough? I don't know. What's more they could do? I don't know their systems in depth. I'm grateful they're willing to talk. I think one of the problems is that social media developed so quickly And it was a train that just went from zero to 10,000 in, you know, the blink of an eye. And we all started running with this thing and talking and communicating 
and now we're running into some things and it's really hard to change the trajectory of a train like that when it's running this fast. So we're curious then, as you look at other countries, let's say in the EU, have you seen creative approaches that seem more effective than just pointing people to factual information? Again, I think the personal communication, the being able to reach out through people that they trust, I think that's not a country-specific one. I think that is something that is working across the board a bit better than some other things. Finding out, again, why people are concerned and getting creative messaging. You know, public health entities, again, I adore them. I love the CDC. I love the World Health Organization. But we also know that family practice physicians, family physicians, primary care physicians are among the most trusted people in medicine, but also the most trusted people in general. I think also finding other trusted messengers. So look at religious messages, clergy of any type of kind. That may not work for everybody, but there are some people that is who they're going to listen to. Let's get celebrities involved. I don't really care how people get to it. I just want them to get to getting the vaccine because I know how helpful it's going to be. And so I think looking at it more creatively and saying, what is a better way? What may be a good way for this person? No one's going to listen to any one source all the time. So that's how humankind functions. We all have different people, entities, corners that we're more likely to listen to. And please, let's learn from this for the next one. This is not the last pandemic. This is not the last virus. Let's try to do a little bit better. And I think a lot of it, Robert, is this idea of science communication, of science literacy, of helping people understand science better, not just about vaccines, but about climate change, about really anything that science develops. We need to get better at this. We need to train people better this because that's something where we've really seen a nosedive. And why are there autism rates one in a thousand? There might be a correlation. Some people have been saying online that the virus is harmless or even that it doesn't exist. So I'm not endangering people in my community because my children are incredibly healthy. They have robust immune systems. So it also seems like when you try to shut down misinformation, it plays into the hands of the people who are skeptical with government control to begin with. It, like it kind of doubles down, um, like, look, see, they're trying to silence us. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the other things is I hear a lot of people say, I can do my own research. Well, yes and no. And I think that is something to really, I can do my own research on behavioral responses to infectious diseases, because that's something I actually studied for a long time. But if you want to ask me about the vaccines in general, how is it made? How does the mRNA vaccine works versus the Johnson and Johnson vaccine? I still go to my colleagues who are virologists and immunologists and vaccine developers, because no, I don't understand that field well enough as a scientist to actually do my own research. And I think that's a general concern, this idea of that we don't trust expertise anymore, especially in the intellectual realm. We need to do better at science communication. That's not going to be a quick fix for anything, but we really need to train people better from 
elementary school and maybe earlier even on how to understand science. We need to train teachers better how to teach science and communication about science because otherwise we're going to keep coming back at this over and over again. We are now approaching 600,000 people dead in the U.S. alone from COVID-19. I have, um, my husband and I have two young friends and they lost both their parents to COVID. I just, yesterday was Mother's Day. I have no words for that. And we can't prevent all those deaths. This is a pandemic and it's a serious disease, but we need to get better at preventing the ones that we can prevent. We need to get better at helping people understand that this vaccine is as close to a public health miracle as I've ever seen. That was our featured guest today, Dr. Janine Guidry, founder and director of the Media and Health Lab at Virginia Commonwealth University. She and her colleagues monitor online medical misinformation and devise strategies to combat it. Their current efforts are focused on the misinformation around the safety and benefits of the COVID vaccine. As Dr. Goodry mentions, we can all be part of that effort in talking to friends and colleagues who might be vaccine skeptical about their concerns, but we need to do so with empathy and without judgment. And if possible, directing them to trusted voices on this issue. Yes, the CDC and WHO and state health agency websites, but also to physicians and physicians' assistants for a more personalized discussion. Let's hope Dr. Guidry, her media and health lab, and many other such groups are successful in their efforts to allay vaccine anxiety, both for the current COVID pandemic and, unfortunately, the next inevitable crisis. If you find yourself hesitant or just need some solid info about the COVID vaccine and how to contend with misinformation, check out the links in our show notes. They were handpicked by Dr. Guidry, and we'll be checking back with her on these efforts. Next episode, we're going to learn more about the spread of conspiracy theories online, but also about the formation of cults online and offline. We'll have three special guests, Donnie Whitsett, a professor at the University of Southern California, Dr. Stephen Hassan, author of The Cult of Trump and a former member of the Unification Church. And also Rachel Bernstein, an experienced therapist for cult deprogramming and the host of the Indoctrination Podcast. I think cults do still occupy a physical space and it's just in the brain. And so there doesn't have to be a compound. Many people are getting into very controlling organizations just having never met the people in person. So I think the distance actually can create more of a bond because you fill in the blanks with what you want to be true. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone today. Follow us on your favorite social media platform and subscribe to our newsletter. You can find all these links in our show notes. This has been Robert Pease and Emily Cressetti for the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, producer. Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer. Emily Holloway, digital operations and outreach. Dom Scarlett, research associate. Our original music, composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.